Now, as Bert so aptly pointed out, you can pronounce it Thyatira, Thyatira. I'm going to call it Thyatira. <laughs> Not really. It's too hard to say. As we come to this church, the Church of Thyatira, we find a place that had many good points, as several of the churches in these seven letters do, but it had some things that God calls out as inappropriate. And one of those things that God calls out as inappropriate was their tolerance of evil. And you know, when I read this letter from our Lord to this church setting, it reminded me of an Old Testament story. Do you remember the story of Eli and his sons in the book of 1 Samuel? In that account of this priest named Eli, he was a faithful priest. He was a descendant of Aaron, and he was serving faithfully at God's tabernacle. He had two sons, and the two sons weren't so faithful. They were skimming things off the top as people were bringing in their offerings. They were laying with women on the temple grounds. Anything that you could think of that was inappropriate and wrong, they were doing it. And their father, Eli, basically stood by and watched. He made a comment that, hey, maybe this isn't such a good idea, but that was about as far as he took it. And as a result, God called out Eli, his sons, and the entire line of descendants that would follow or not follow, because he was tolerating the intolerable. And really, that's what we find as we come to this church. Here is a church that had something going on in it, even though they had their strong points, there was something that was going on within the church that ought not to be, and the church did nothing about it. And so this is what the Lord has to say to this church. And let me expand this. This is not just a historical lesson about a church that tolerates the intolerable. I think it's a challenge to us all. It's a challenge. It's a call to us to look at the things that ought not to be in our lives or in our church or in our home. And rather than looking at those things and tolerating them, and hoping that somehow things work out, we need to take a stand. We need to take a stand with the Word of God, with the truth of God, if we want to be followers of Jesus Christ that are commended rather than criticized. So let's look at this church, this church of Thyatira. When we come to the first part of the passage, we find it identified, and right in the 18th verse, this is what it says, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God. Now, we're going to get a little bit of background on this city of Thyatira because I think it will help us understand some of the challenges that this church faced and maybe some of the reasons that they fell into tolerating those things which are intolerable. The city of Thyatira was one of the smallest cities of these seven letters. And it was a city that was rampant, as were the other cities, with worship of false gods. As a matter of fact, there was a cult that was dedicated to Apollo, and if you remember your Greek mythology um, or your Roman mythology, Apollo would have been the son of Jupiter, 
and he was associated with prophecy and with worship of the sun. So there was this large cult of followers right in this town, but there was also another god. There was the god Teremnus, who was also worshipped by the locals. As a matter of fact, you can find the image of this god, archaeologists have found, these coins that have his image, and he was one who was pictured as riding on a horse with a double-edged axe in judgment of his adversaries. So this was another part of their culture, another thing that the church had to contend with. And then there was also a prophetess who was very popular in Thyatira. Her name was Sambath, and she was a prophetess that perhaps is identified as the woman Jezebel a little bit later in the text. We'll be looking into her. But she was an oracle. And for those of you who don't know what an oracle is, they basically were like mediums of today or psychics of today. And she would make statements about what the gods were saying, and everyone listened with bated breath to hear what she would have to say. And this was something that the church had to contend with. It was a part of the culture that was ingrained in the thinking of the people. These pagan influences were huge challenges for the people of Thyatira. And they had to deal with it day in and day out. As they were sharing about the one true God, the one true Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, here was a culture where it said, yeah, we believe in a Son of God. We believe in Apollo. He's the Son of Zeus. And we'd be happy to add your Jesus to our collection of gods if that's what it takes to appease your God. There were challenges that they were facing. And many of those within the church were also associated with some of the practices that were associated in worshiping these gods. For the worship of many of the pagan gods, there was a great deal of sexual immorality tied up in their worship. As a matter of fact, many of the temples in the ancient Near East and in what is now modern-day Turkey, which was part of Greece at that time, many of the worshipers would go to temple prostitutes and that was a part of their daily life. It was a part of their culture. It was acceptable, if you will. And so this is what this church at Thyatira had to deal with. But then, as with the other letters, the Lord Jesus Christ identifies attributes that pertain to some of the things that he's going to discuss with the church at Thyatira. And that's what we find as we go on in that 18th verse. Bear in mind John is recording the words of the Lord Jesus Christ directly given to these churches. And what he says to the churches, first of all, he identifies himself as the Son of God. Not a Son of God, like Apollos, but the Son of the God. That's the idea that is being communicated by this. Jesus the part of the Trinity where there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons yet one God. And what Jesus is sharing with the church at Thyatira is the words that I share with you have authority. This is truth. This is something that you need to hold to and believe with all of your heart because of who's saying it. Jesus Christ 
The Son of God is giving them these words, and they had better listen to what Jesus has to share. This is the call to this church. But then, notice he goes on to identify something else. All of these are found in the first chapter, these descriptions, but look at what it goes on to say. He has eyes like the flame of fire. Now, as we saw this in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we know that this was symbolism. And the idea of the eyes like flames of fire is they were penetrating. They were able to see into the heart and into the mind and into the very soul of all of the people. Jesus Christ knows everything is the idea. And there's power behind this because He not only sees what is going on, but He holds accountable those who are doing evil. These eyes of flame penetrate into the secrets of men's hearts. And then he mentions another attribute, the feet of burnished bronze. Now, what's really interesting about Thyatira is they had many guilds of craftsmen and workers, and one of those guilds was a bronze-working guild. They had learned to take zinc and copper and fashion it into a stronger metal. And it was often used to make implements of war, such as shields or swords, but then it was also used to make idols. And this bronze was noted for being strong and, and able to crush things like the wicker shields that someone might use, the sword of bronze would cut right through that, that double-edged sword. So in this text, when it's talking about these feet of burnished bronze, it's talking about strength, it's it's, it's talking about power, but it's also talking about judgment. You see, when we look throughout the Scripture, when it talks about God treading upon the high places of His enemies, what it's talking about is God showing judgment, bringing judgment on those who stand against Him, on those who oppose Him. So Jesus identifies Himself as God in that He is the Son of God. He identifies Himself as the all-knowing one, the one with the flames of fire that is able to see into the secrets of men's hearts. And then He identifies Himself as the one with feet of burnished bronze. He is able to judge those who stand opposed to Him, who are against Him. This is a warning that God is giving to this church of Thyatira, and He wants them to grasp who it is that is addressing the issues that he will address in just a little while. You know, we've pointed out with the other churches, as Westerners, we like to keep Jesus manageable, comfortable. Put him in a place to where he's picking up the lamb. Put him in a place to where he's always this loving, kind, gentle soul. And that is who Christ is. But there is also the aspect that is brought out in Scripture that He is God. And that sin is an affront to His character and His nature, and He is also just. To have an accurate picture of Jesus Christ, we have to see Him as loving and just. Otherwise, we have an incomplete picture. If you view Him as only judging, you will never want to approach Him. 
You'll never want to come to him. You'll never see the love and the grace that he extends to you, and you'll stand apart. If you see him as completely always gentle and kind and loving and compassionate, you'll never see that there is a wrath that is a part of God's character and nature that must deal with sin because He is also just. And to have a balanced picture of Jesus, we need to have both. And that's what Jesus is sharing with this church at Thyatira. Now, as we continue in this text, we come to the 19th verse. And here in the 19th verse, we find the Lord Jesus Christ commending the church. He's calling the church to pursue biblical truth, but he begins with a commendation for the good character and the spiritual growth that the people at Thyatira were experiencing. So let's look at what he has to say about the church because these are good things, and these are things that we should copy. So let's look at it. I know your works. Now, to begin with, he's saying, look, this isn't a dead church. That is, this isn't a church that's sitting on their laurels. This is a church that is serving. They are busy. They are doing things for God. That's commendable. God does not want believers to just occupy geography in a pew once a week and not do anything else. He wants us to serve. He wants us to work, and this is what they were doing. So let's look at these works that he expands upon. First of all, he says, I know your love. Now, if you remember one of the earlier churches, the first one we considered the church at Ephesus, was a church that had lost its first love. God called them to task for not being the loving church that they should have been. That's not the case with Thyatira. In Thyatira, they are held forth as an example for their love. Love, our love for God and our love for one another, these are important attributes to God. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples and to all of us, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God wants us to be loving. God wants us to love one another. God wants us to love him. The church at Thyatira was doing this. They were loving God, and it's held forth in the eternal Word of God as one of their attributes. Something else, they had faith. And what is interesting is this relationship between works, love, and faith. As a matter of fact, the text goes on to say in this passage of Scripture, I know your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. All of these kind of blend together in a church that is living the way that it ought to live, in a believer who is living in the way that they ought to believe. Faith is something that believes and trusts God. It's our entrance into salvation, but it is also a major part of our life as we live out the Christian life. We walk by faith. We live in faith. Faith is simply taking God at His word. And one of the passages that we often quote when it comes to salvation is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, sometimes forgetting the 10th verse. But it's an important part of the flow of thought, that chain of thought that's given to us in this text. So let's look at it. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation, a relationship with God, comes apart from works as far as entering into that relationship. We don't earn our way into right standing with God. That's what this verse shares. But while we are saved by faith alone, faith is never alone. There is something that accompanies that faith that trusts God and enters into a relationship with Him, and that is serving God works. That's why the 10th verse goes on to say, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Look at the last statement, that we should walk in them. A part of every believer's life who has entered into that faith relationship with God should be walking in the works that God has prepared for you. This, the church at Thyatira was doing. And they're commended for it. As a matter of fact, look at the next statement in that 19th verse. The Lord goes on to say, your latter works exceed your first. Man, I hope that God can look at our church and at my life and say to us, the things you're doing now are exceeding the things you did. Our Walk with God should be an ever-growing, ever-deepening walk with God. Sometimes I think we settle in for this idea that I will faithfully serve God for a while, but then I will settle into mediocrity. What God wants to see in our lives is a perpetual growth. He wants to look at our lives and say, the things you're doing now exceed the things that you did. This is what was going on with the church at Thyatira. They're commended for it. So here we have this church in a difficult setting, in a place where they were experiencing real growth in their walk with God. We see a church that is commended in ways that all of us would love to be commended, right? So if the letter were to end here, we would go away feeling really good about the church at Thyatira. But there's something that was wrong. They were compromising. And their tolerance needed to stop. Look at the 20th verse. An important word of contrast begins the 20th verse, but. In contrast to all of these attributes, all of these good things that you've been doing, I have this against you. Words we don't want to hear from the Lord, right? Look at what he says. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, in order to understand this text, we have to go back into Old Testament history. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, a northern king for the northern kingdom. Remember, there were ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. They had split the northern king did, or kingdom did not have one good king, and out of all of the bad kings, Ahab and Jezebel probably were just about as bad as it gets. Jezebel was a priestess, or the daughter of a priestess to Baal. She introduced idolatry to the people. She was known for her sexual immorality. Just horrible, horrible human being. 
She was involved in sexual immorality. She was involved in murder. She was involved in plotting. She was involved in pushing the whole kingdom away from God and towards selfishness. This was Jezebel. Now, here in Revelation, Jezebel hasn't been resurrected. This isn't her come back from the dead. But it's a woman who was fulfilling the same role as the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira very simply is this. You have one in your church body who is fulfilling the role of Jezebel in false teaching, in licentious living, doing whatever you want to do, and you stand by and you let it happen. That's what Jesus had against the church at Thyatira. Now, many have speculated that perhaps the woman that is mentioned here was the woman I mentioned earlier, Sambath, and that she was a prophetess who was coming in and saying things that were not based on the Word of God, but based on her own speculation and based on her own ideas. And perhaps even more insidious than that, many of those who claim to be speaking for God are actually speaking for the devil. As a matter of fact, when we look in this text, Jesus mentions that there were those who had bought into the deep things of Satan. Verse 24, so I would submit to you that probably this person who is compared to Jezebel, whoever she was, was a person who was leading the church into deep sin. Here she's identified as one who calls herself a prophetess. In other words, she was saying, this is direct communication from God to all of you. Now listen, there will be times where you will hear people make the claim, I just heard a word from God. How do we deal with that? Understand this. If somebody says, I've heard a word from God and it directly contradicts what God's Word says, that is not a word from God. God is not changing His mind. He's not saying, oops, I made a mistake. I was too rash in making that rule. That's not the way God operates. You see, the moral compass that God gives us in His Word isn't something that's directly associated with a culture, and it changes as the culture changes. God's moral standards are based on God's character and nature. When God says, do not commit adultery, it is a revelation of God's faithfulness. When God says, do not lie, it is a revelation of God's truth. When God says, do not commit murder, it is a revelation of God's love and mercy and forgiveness. These are things that go against the character and the nature of God. And this is what this woman who was like Jezebel was doing. She was leading people away from what God has said clearly in His Word. Look at what it says she was teaching the people to do. Teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. She was teaching that it didn't matter that God's moral standards are no longer applicable. Go out and do whatever you want to do sexually, and it really doesn't matter. 
Now, we look at this and we say, well, how in the world could people fall into that? But I want to share something with you. There are many in the church today that are living in such a way that they no longer pay attention to the moral standards that God sets in place. Many of the studies and surveys that are being taken today show that Christians divorce like the world, cohabitate like the world, that Christians engage in cohabitation before marriage like the world. They do many things that God's Word which is eternal and timeless, says that we should not do. But they look at it and they say, well, things are different now. While they may not have the prophetess Jezebel whispering in their ear, they have an entire culture that is. And my concern is that as a church and as believers, we have allowed these things to creep in to our culture, and we no longer look at these things as sinful and wrong, we just sort of look and go, nah, that's the way it is now. Sounds a lot like Thyatira, doesn't it? We're buying in to what this church that was such a good church bought into and is being challenged by the Lord to rectify. When it says they were tolerating this woman, you know what it means to tolerate? It means to permit, to give freedom, to let it go by. God's moral compass and teachings are eternal. Not up for grabs. Not something that we look at and say it's no longer apropos. She was introducing them to idolatry. So what happens? Here is this woman who's doing these terrible things. She's leading people into sexual immorality. By the way, the word sexual immorality is a word that we get our word pornography from, that immorality that was taking place. God's Word says to us as believers, we're not to do that. In fact, at the church of Corinth, which was not too far from Thyatira, The Apostle Paul had an issue with many of the leaders in the church at Corinth. They were still going to the temple prostitutes while they were serving within the church. And this is what the Apostle Paul said to them, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is what God would have us do. This is how God would have us live. But here were these people coming in, changing the rules, encouraging others to go along with it. So what happens? There are consequences. Jesus would not tolerate what the church at Thyatira was tolerating. So in verse 22, it begins with the word behold. And by the way, in Scripture, when you say, see the word behold, that means pay attention. Something deep is about to be said. And so this is what he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. 
Now, the call is for repentance. What he's saying is this, there is still time to avert the consequences that I'm sharing with you. And what is required is repentance. And repentance very simply means if I'm heading away from God, that I turn around and I start heading toward God. That's the idea of repentance. And he's calling on the people who had bought in to the teachings that this Jezebel was giving, calling on them to turn away from that and to turn to God. But those who didn't, including the woman called Jezebel, they were going to be thrown into either a sickbed or they would be thrown into tribulation. Now, let's talk about those for a moment. First of all, the sickbed. Let me be very clear on this. If you are sick, it does not necessarily mean that you are under the punishment of God. Okay? Some people, like the counselors of Job in the Old Testament, associate one with the other. But God can choose to use that as a discipline or a judgment. And when you look at it, doesn't that punishment sort of fit the crime? And here's why. Jezebel was sinning against the marriage bed. So I think it's significant that God says in this text, I will cast you onto a bed of sickness. She was being immoral. Perhaps the sickness that she had was even a sexually transmitted disease because of her, her immoral lifestyle. This was something that was a consequence of her choices. But not only would Jezebel, the cause of this problem in the church of Thyatira be judged, but those who bought into it would also be judged. Those who were listening to her teaching and following her teaching faced consequences for their choices. Listen, our culture is a blame others culture, isn't it? So-and-so made me do this. Well, guess what? I'm responsible for the choices that I make. And if I decide to buy into something that is against God's truth, I'm held accountable. So what God is saying is not only will the teacher, the false teacher that's leading others into sin be under my judgment, my consequences, so also those who have followed her, chosen to do what she says, they will be held accountable as well. God wants us to live in accountability. Still the opportunity for any of them to repent, any of them to turn from their sinful ways. And that's God's heart. That's what God wanted to see. But they were refusing to do that. And then, it's also mentioned in this text, and I will strike her children dead, that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, this is a very difficult part of the passage. By children, most Bible teachers that I've seen don't believe they're talking about her biological children as much as the children who have followed her as far as followers. Often, a disciple would be called the child of a teacher. And so this is what's going on, and what it's saying is some of them who had bought into the teaching would not only face tribulation, but they would die. And so God is holding this out as consequences. Now listen, 
As believers, sometimes when we look at the mercy of God and we're sinning against God, seemingly with impunity, we confuse the mercy and long-suffering of God with God really not caring about our sin. That's wrong. God is giving us the chance to repent. But God also promises us in His Word when we choose to persist in a direction of disobedience toward Him, if we are really His children, if we are really God's, God will have to punish us. One passage of Scripture that talks about this is from the book of Hebrews, and it says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So listen, when we sin against God, What God is saying is, if you are my child, you will bear consequences because I love you. How unloving would it be for God to allow us to go down a path of destruction for ourselves and those who are associated with us without ever trying to turn us back? We've seen children who have parents who do not discipline them. And as a result, the children lose their way. They have no idea how to function in society or in the world. God is saying He will not allow that with His children. And He's bearing it out here in this warning to Jezebel and her followers. Something else the Word of God says is this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for... Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Listen, God is telling us what goes around comes around. If all I do is live outside of the purpose and the will of God, I'm going to reap that whirlwind of consequences that come as a result of that decision. So this is a warning to all that we should not live in this way. And then as far as the death of these children, while God will discipline us, while God will give us every opportunity to repent, the Scripture speaks of a sin that can even lead to death. Now again, everyone who dies early is not a candidate for this passage of Scripture But if we refuse to listen to God out of love for us, concern for us in His testimony, the Scripture says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. Wow. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, wow, you know, pastor's a little intense this morning, isn't he? Just preaching the Word. And we need to have a balance in the way that we look at these things. And while it's perhaps uncomfortable and politically incorrect to discuss these things, they are in the eternal Word of God. And as a pastor, I would be doing a disservice to the Word of God and to you 
the church body that I love deeply if I didn't bring them out. Last part of this passage. The text goes on to talk about something else. Choosing to follow Christ is the only course that makes sense. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Only hold fast to what I have until I come, or what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. First, what do we experience? Because we keep our focus on Christ and we pursue the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what we're promised? We're promised to reign with Him. All of that language about authority and other nations coming to Him, even the imagery of clay pots and an iron rod, the imagery would have meant a lot to the people of that century. Have you ever seen a contrast between a pot of clay and an iron rod? Guess who wins the contest every time, right? You whack that terracotta pot that you put your plants in um, with, with an iron rod and see what happens. You know, it explodes. The idea is it's an overwhelming power and authority. Listen, God's kingdom is coming. And so what he's promising to those who overcome is this. I know it's tough. I know it's difficult to make it through all of the things that you have to go through in life wherever you are, whether it's Thyatira or right here in the Chicago area. I know it's tough. But in the end, you win. In the end, the one who has authority over everything, that is who you are with for eternity. And that's the perspective that we need to keep. That's how we conquer. If I'm overwhelmed by the challenges of life that I have to face day in and day out, and I want to just give up because it's too hard, it's too difficult, too frustrating, I've lost perspective. I'm with the one who wins. And I need to remember that my faithfulness in making it through difficulty now will be greatly rewarded when I appear before my God. When Jesus was talking about the end times and the Olivet Discourse, He said this in a parable. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enjoy or enter into the joy of your master. This is what we have to look forward to, folks. This is what God is reminding us of in this passage. We look forward to victory. That's ours, and that needs to be our focal point. Something else. The coming of the morning star. Look at the last part of this passage, and with this we'll end. And I will give him the morning star. Now, think about the morning star for a moment. The morning star, when it appears, it means... Morning's coming, right? It's hope. The night's about done. The morning stars popped in there. I'm looking forward to dawn, right? When darkness goes away. But it's even more than that. When you look in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says this, 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. When Jesus is telling us here in the first part of Revelation that he will give us the morning star, he's talking about presence. He's talking about intimacy. Right now, our relationship with Jesus can be very intimate, but it's not face-to-face, right? We can't experience His presence in the way that we can when sin is eradicated and when we stand before Him and we will know Him as He is. Right now, seeing through a glass dimly, but then face-to-face. This is our hope. This is what we hold on to. This is what should inspire us toward faithfulness. When I'm tempted to give in, when I'm tempted to compromise, when I'm tempted to tolerate things in my life that I ought not to tolerate, I need to take the long view and look to the things of God and make that my passion, make that my focal point, and keep moving toward those things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the difficult things that are said. God, you say these things because you love us and because you want to see us do right, live right, for our good and for your glory. So, God, my prayer is that we will put aside the things that we tolerate that ought not to be tolerated and that we will look to the things of God, making our time in your kingdom the focal point of our lives. We're just sojourners passing through. Our real home is with you. And how we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.